Welcome to 42 Answers from Founders for Founders, a podcast series brought to you by Project A Ventures, the operational VC. My name is Rainer Berak, operating partner at Project A, and our guest today is Christina Prokop. Welcome. Thank you very much, Rainer. Pleasure to be here. In this podcast, we talk to great founders and we ask them a standardized set of questions in the domains we think matter for building a successful company. And these are tech, growth, people, data, and ESG. Christina, who are you, what do you do, and why do you do it? My name is Christina Prokop. Uh, who I am, I am an American who's been living in Germany, in Berlin, for the last 22 years. Been working in the ad tech space for, uh, gosh now, so for 24 years. And uh, mother of two great boys and uh, a lover of international business and, and startup, startup life. Um, who, what, do, what do I do? So I'm the, the co-founder and CEO of a company called IOTA, um, which I'll tell you a bit more about in a moment. And why I do it, um, you know, it's funny. It's, it's so hard to really define what, what drives you every day to do what you do. But for me, it's always about improving, problem solving, building a, building an amazing team and surrounding, you know, building an environment and surrounding surrounding myself with people who want to achieve great things. Um, so that is a little bit about me. Um, what I, I'll tell you a few, a few bits about the company uh, that I co-founded over just about 12 years ago. Um, so IOTA is a company that's focused on, you know, servicing brands, publishers, and data owners, and providing them with solutions that allow them to onboard, enrich, and activate data assets, primarily in digital um, in digital ecosystems. Um, it's a global company. We started uh, we actually started international first. Um, so we founded across, uh, and I think this is an interesting tidbit. I think we're probably the only company to have founded across three continents. So one founder in Berlin, one in Singapore, one in Sydney, um, and actually entered the U.S. as as the as the last market we went into. Okay, and your target group is um, who is it actually? It's it's uh, so you're a B two B company, and 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 it's it's marketeers, it's marketing decision makers. Correct. So on the one hand, um, obviously the, the the customers we have, they are companies, marketers, uh, marketers and brands who are looking for solutions to help them enhance and build very smart data strategies. Um, that deliver, you know, deliver results for all of their their marketing and advertising purposes, um, and that's pretty broad. It can be for advertising of um, of uh, sorry, it's for for advertising campaigns. That can be for overlap and analytics to get a better understanding about their um, you know about their customer base. Um, so everything that's going to support them in their in their advertising and marketing objectives. And the per and the the role or the person um, taking the buying decision of saying I want to I'm 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 not okay if my company pays for using IOTA what what role would that be? So there's a couple different. Um, so one target group for us are agencies, um, and those are primarily the people who are building the data the targeting strategies for advertising campaigns, primarily programmatic advertising campaigns within that agency. Um, and then a lot of times that's also just the the traders, um, you know, the programmatic traders with their with their hands on a keyboard deciding what seg what audience segments and what targeting uh, targeting functions to apply to a campaign. Then on the other hand, we have um, you know we work with brands directly. It's a it's a newer part of our business. 
um, and offering the you know the the data asset that we have of 8.5 billion profiles with different audience segmentation, offering that to them for purposes of enriching their first party data, using it for overlap and analytics to have a better understanding of their of their customer base. And that is then very much more within the within the brand's organization, whoever is responsible for data strategy. Okay. Thanks a lot for that. That helps a lot to put uh, the answers that we will hear now into perspective. People. If you would start a company today, what would be your first five hires? So I think this obviously varies based on who the one person is you're talking to. So for me, for example, I cannot program. I so one of the very first for me um, is a tech lead. You know, a tech lead who's going to help execute um, execute the vision. Um, and I would actually build that out to you know one tech lead and one that can can straddle in between tech and product. Mm-hmm. Um, then I would definitely hire one what I would call a Swiss Army knife. Um, you know, so in a small team, you need somebody who can do a little bit of the marketing, a little bit of like supporting in sales and customer su- customer success, and and somebody who can just who can move seamlessly in between a lot of different tasks and a lot of different responsibilities. Um, then I would take one person for, depending on on what type of business you're trying to build one person who could do sales and or business development. Um, so I'll just give you an example from our side. You know, on the one hand, we're, we're, we're building data partnerships with companies that have data assets or websites that have data, um, you know, that have data about their customer base. And on the other hand, we need to, we need to sell that for, so for us, that first person would be ideally someone who could, who could serve as both commercial sides at the same time until you reach a critical mass where you can start building out teams in the individual, um, in the individual environments. Um, and then somebody to handle all the operations. Um, somebody mm-hmm. who's a real hardcore, also a, a bit of, uh, you know, a bit of a, uh, a jack of a jack or Jill of all trades who can who can do a lot of that you know hands on keyboard doing whatever you have to do in your platform um, you know helping with the execution of first deals you bring in. Were these your first five hires? Um, actually, yes, they were. Um, oh. It very yeah, it does it does <laughs> actually mirror um, how we built um, you know how we built built the team out. Yeah. And I think it was, and I think that's why why I came back to it. It's it it worked very well for us. Um, and I think that's definitely how I would do it again. Okay, what's the hardest to hire today? Which skills are the most scarce in the market? Oh my gosh, can I tell you? Actually, everything. <laughs> <laughs> We are finding, you know, I I I have a feeling it's not limited to our industry right now. Hiring right now is just difficult across the board engineering, marketing, sales. It's just, it's an incredibly competitive, competitive market. And, uh, you know, we're, we're a global company. So we're trying to make hires in the US, in the UK, across Europe, in, in Asia and in Australia um, and everywhere. It's just, um, it's, it's a hard market right now. And as to be quite frank, as an employer, this is causing a lot of the employee, co- employee costs to go up. Um, and it's hard to manage because where do you, you know, you kind of planned your business on a, on a certain cost, um, you know, on a certain cost structure and you really have to sit there and reevaluate it. So how do you, um, you know, how do you stay competitive? Um, how do you stay competitive in market? Um, 
and I think just a, just a, you know, a highlight for, uh, in, in our, in our situation is we were recently, uh, acquired it last November by a company called Dun & Bradstreet. It's a large, um, you know, large global, uh, public listed company. Um, and of course what comes into that is then, you know, if you're looking at how do you, how do you build attractive comp packages, that whole idea of, you know, options and, and, and getting people in on, on, you know, on the, on the dream of the exit opportunity with lower, you know, with maybe lower base comp isn't an option anymore. So it, to be honest, it really, it, it is, is probably the largest challenge we have right now is how do we attract the right talent? And it's unfortunately not, I mean, engineering is definitely one of the most difficult, um, but I really wouldn't limit it to that. It's, uh, it's the biggest challenge we have right now. Okay. Um, how do you measure employee satisfaction so that the people stay on board once you hire them? So we do an employee survey um, that's standardized every six months. And we measure based on that. It has a, it has a range of questions with everything from you know the day-to-day -day work environment to uh, opportunities for upward mobility, how they feel communication is working across the organization. Uh, and then based on those results, we we put together an action plan for, you know, what do we want to focus on improving in the next six months and 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 move forward with that. How about um, employee performance? Do you do you measure that by any way and, and, and let it float into your, I don't know, compensation bonuses, et cetera? Yes, we do. Uh, right now, you know, of course, as a smaller company, you know, we're about 80. Well, now we're probably about 90 people. Mm -hmm. um, we don't use an overly complex, big uh, system. Like we, you know, we have a we have a very streamlined three hundred and sixty review process that rolls up into the overall uh, overall evaluation. So we look at not only and that as a you know we look at not only what the manager's performance uh, performance evaluation is, but also look at both if they have direct reports, direct reports. Um, Cross, uh, you know, cross departmental um, colleagues that they work with on a regular basis, and mm -hmm. other leaders in the organization, um, and it works very well. You know, it gives us a good picture of not only how they're how they're performing in their day to day from their direct manager, but also the impact. You know, their impact they're having on the greater organization. How about the organizational structure? What's what's your favorite org chart? <laughs> <laughs> It's one. Uh, so ours right now is one that is, it, it feels like it's in permanent flow uh, because of all the changes we've been going through with the integration. Um, but for me, you know, I, I, I really believe in keeping, you know, I have a, I have a direct report line of about, uh, you know, four, five people who are directly managing larger teams and then a, a few, a few smaller ones. Um, so in terms of the org chart, You know, I, I like to keep it pretty, I, I guess I would say pretty classic in terms of head of finance, head of marketing, head of operations, um, head of product, head of technology, um, and that's, and, and head of commercial. So those are, you know, we have a pretty, and then, you know, based under that, we have, we have each of the different, you know, biz dev and sales and the accounts as a, the customer success teams, um, our day-to-day -day operations teams that make all the data flow through the system, those are then all organized under those key, um, you know, under those key leaders. Okay. What's your approach to culture? Uh, that's a good question. Also very, very relevant for us right now because we're in the middle of this integration. Um, 
because you know it's uh, it's two cultures coming together and uh, actually three um, just again a very unique situation they actually uh, acquired a, a second company at the same time called Netwise a U.S. based company um, that we're all bringing together at once into a new unit within uh, Dun and Bradstreet so it's um, you know it's right now it's about us trying to find what you know identify and 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 propagate the culture that we want for this new organization. Um, but in the way that I approach it, and I believe is can be impactful for the organization, is it really has to be something that first and foremost is role modeled by the leaders in the organization. Um, you know, I think these are we we did go through a very uh, you know, a very important process as we were IOTA standalone in terms of identifying our core values um, and and propagating that through the company. And it was a, it was a great learning experience because I, th- I think what's important is you have to you have to look at it through the lens of not what do I want the company to be, but rather who are we? I mean, it's a living, breathing organization, and there are there are certain values and things that drive the culture that are inherent within within the organization and you have to then you know take those ones that you want to magnify and and make a big part you know make make really a meaningful part of the organization those are the ones you have to pull out as a leadership team and role model and celebrate on a daily basis and i think that's really you know leading leading by example is where it has to start do you prefer a company to be remote first or office first and putting aside that we all had that first you have a distributed team uh, as you said across uh, three continents which means you are already quite spread with your team but um, more about the question should they come to the office or not and also besides the well the 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 covid situation that we had that made us stay at home for some time but but what do you prefer if you really have the choice if i personally have a choice i do like I, I do like the hybrid model um, because it is, um, but and, and, but actually tending towards office first. And the, the only reason I say that it's it's a very personal preference. I'm somebody who thrives on personal contact. I like mm-hmm. to be able to talk to people and see them. And of course, it all goes over video. Um, but I think what can't be replaced, or you know, it's hard to replace. If I look back in the beginning of my career. What was the times that I learned the most, the fastest, was when I was sitting in an environment, basically in through osmosis, just mm-hmm. taking in all types of information about what was going on in the business and being able to ask questions, say, hey, what do you mean by that? And where, like, you know, what do you think about this or that? And that's something that really gets lost in, in, mm-hmm. in the remote first, um, in the remote first environment. But the reality that we have right now is, I don't, I don't think probably for years and years that we will ever go back to an office first um, environment for any of us. Yeah, and it's something that I think uh, it's also something that employees, for a large part, don't want. And you know, we're we're finding right now that you know, a lot of employees that are on market looking for jobs, some of them are because companies are 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 demanding that they come back to office full time. So I think as a as a you know as a as a leader we don't as leaders we don't have a choice other than to support a hybrid like a hybrid environment but I really um, you know if I look at where I want us to go 
it's for people to to connect on a face-to-face basis. Like at the moment, we're trying to do a lot of group offsites to get people back together and 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 communicating and exchanging, at least to kick this off. But I really want people to understand the value and, and appreciate the the benefits of being face and face in the office. And that's something we have to, I think, like, you know, just slowly get everybody acclimated to again after all, after the last couple of years. Tech. IOTA is a tech company, right? Yes, we are. If you, and you mentioned the two, as you mentioned it also as two leading um, uh, functions or also roles, if you have product and development, who of the two should be in the lead? So we we used to be a uh, all decisions were driven through tech. To be quite honest, we didn't have a product function really until a couple of years ago, uh, and the company is almost twelve years old. So previously, all of it was really driven by tech. Um, now it is more driven by product in terms of defining. You know, I think what it's what it's teaching us to do is is be more diligent about what we are developing and, and the whys to make sure that we stay on target with delivering things that really matter to our clients and not, and not things that are, it, it's not that we don't want to deliver cool technology, but it has to have the right end purpose and be, uh, you know, and be the right, the right product that our customers need. So is it product or in, in, in which role specifically who is deciding what's to be developed next? What's where on the roadmap? What's in the next uh, sprint, et cetera? Or it's not done in a silo. Um, you know, so we so we do have um, you know we do have a um, a head of our product, um, but it really and, and we look at this. What we do is we come together as a as a management team, and we review everything that is um, that's up on. Uh, you know, up for review for an upcoming quarter. Um, and generally at the moment, we do this on a quarterly basis. And uh, we decide as a group because obviously you always have to have the balance in between what's going to drive, what do you need to do to drive commercial growth? Uh, but on the other hand, as a, it's for three, it's, it's three things that we have to look at. It's both commercial growth, it's as innovation, so product product innovation. So where, so for example, for us, that's kind of you know where is it, where are things going in the cookie list environment? Um, you know where are we building for for a future in in multiple IDs that are flowing through our system, so on and so through our uh, ecosystem. Then the other one is we have to make sure we also continue to work on the scalability and stability of our platforms um, because they're you know they're massive data platforms that just keep getting bigger and bigger. And if we don't take some of the resources and apply to that, it's, um, you know, it's, 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 you know, the, so all of these three things are ones that we evaluate. And in that quarter, we'll look at, okay, what is the most important for right now? And what can we, you know, just basically we go through a, through, through a process of prioritization and everybody checking off and agreeing that that is what we decide as a management team and, and putting that in stone. Okay. What's your take on product-led growth? It's a term that is around a lot lately. I mean, it is it is a very good theory. Um, the one thing that I just, I mean, I think what 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 I would challenge is it has to be evaluated from so many different lenses um, that I think really focusing only on product-led growth. Um, I'm not sure I, I buy into it 100 percent yet. Um, 
Yeah. So I think more than that, I, I don't have too much to say about it, but it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting, you know, an, an interesting approach. Um, one that, one that we look at, but it's, uh, I'm not, not a hundred percent bought in just yet. Okay. What's the role of design, um, at IOTA? So design for us, we, as a B2B company, the interesting thing is we don't actually have a UI or, or a place that we're interfacing with clients that our technology inf interfaces directly with our customers. Um, so what happens is we have, we have a lot of, um, you know, data products, but the whole, the, the most important thing about our products is that we put them at the, at our customers' fingertips in the platforms where they are managing their advertising and marketing. So they don't have an extra step to have to come to us to, to integrate, integrate data solutions. So it becomes very easy to use for our end customers. Um, but it also means that a lot of that design and, um, you know, the importance of having a, a, you know, a good usability and experience for the end user, we have to rely on our channel partners for that. So that becomes, you know, the, the demand side platforms of the world, the, the data management platforms of the world. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, you know, it, it, for us, design is primarily really only in our, branding and our and our logos and things like that and obviously you know the the usability for our internal tools because we do have you know we do have internal users that are that are managing everything in our platform that does need to get looked at but it i would say in our business it's not as it doesn't have as um as high a profile as in other businesses where they have a, a very clear you know customer facing ui that that people are using okay do you or would you outsource software development? Yes, we would, but only parts of it. And we have. Um, but so basically the way that we looked at it is there, there's no central like core development that we would outsource. But for us, there are, there are quite a few things we have to do that are just iterative processes or repetition or repetitive processes of, for example, integrating into these endpoints where... We just don't need, like, we, you know, we don't need IOTA brains to be sitting on it necessarily. We've gotten to the point where, you know, we can, as an, on an ad hoc basis or uh, as, you know, as an on, uh, as needed basis, we can, we can grab some outsourced support to be able to do that. But that's the only, for us, that's the only area that we, that we have outsourced so far. Growth. If you think about the whole funnel, brand, marketing, sales, customer success, um, as far as I understand, you do have all these functions at IOTA, correct? Um, we do. I would just say for us, brand and marketing is is one person, so that's one one department, one, there's there's not individuals, one responsible for brand and one responsible for marketing. For us, that sits in one person. Okay. And then, yes, we do have a sales team and a customer success team. And is any of these in, lead, in the lead when it comes to the overall funnel and, and making sure that, that the revenue comes? Yeah, I mean, for, for us right now, um, so there's two sides of our business. We have the programmatic ad targeting side of the business, where primarily our, our end customers are the agencies. Mm -hmm. um, then we have a products that are going to brands direct. And... Um, And that is, and, and those are, those actually function very separately. So from the agency side, it is very much focused on the direct sales team. 
Um, there's a lot of support from marketing brand, but like the real, the real, um, you know, the real weight of that responsibility um, goes on the sales team. And recently, an account we've just built an account management team within that, uh, you know, within the sales organization that will work on growing existing existing business. Um, now, for the other side of the business, the one that focuses on brands and and basically the licensing of our data for use cases outside of ad targeting, that then does very much more fall on brand as so a fall on the marketing team. Um, and um, and also the the customer success for for upselling and cross selling um, the 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 clients that we have on board, because for us what's what's you know what's interesting out of business since we have a global um, you know a truly global data asset what what happens a lot is we'll sign on a customer and they'll do a pilot in let's say two countries so by successfully piloting those two countries. We then have the the opportunity to expand that into 15, 18, you know, additional countries where we work together. So the revenue, you know, the the revenue drive is really is is focused um, f- focus on you know multiple channels. Mm-hmm. Now, whenever you have multiple people or functions working on a funnel, and um, the result in the end is hopefully revenue, um, and things are not going great, it easily happens that they start to build up the silo and blame each other. Um, I don't know, the leads that they got weren't great or they weren't converted great or they didn't have much upsells or cross-sales potential. How can you make sure that that there's not this blame game that, that they don't work in silos? Well, I think it's clearly defining what are what are the leads that have to come, what are the, what's the expectation of the type of leads that come out of it? Um, clearly defining what that deliverable is, making sure that that's it. Um, and then the rest would fall on, you know, fall on the sales team to make sure that those leads are are um, are converted. Now, obviously, there's a question of, you know, there's, it's always a very, um, you know, it's a very objective objective uh, question as to what 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 is really a qualified lead that's being passed through. Um, so it's not. I mean, to date, we we don't do. So we don't do enough of the hardcore, uh, the hardcore lead generation that has become a problem yet. Because for the agency, I mean, just for to give it a little bit of color, for the agency side of the business, this it's a it's a challenge for us because it's not a it's not a pure, it's not a black and white sales job as it is where you go in and you get a contract signed and you have something in black and white that says client X is going to spend. Fifty thousand, hundred thousand, or two hundred thousand dollars with you. For the agency business that we run, it's basically a lot of influencing. So basically, what we have to do is make sure that when people, when agencies or or people who are who are who are managing advertising campaigns, are at that point where they're choosing data to apply to for campaign targeting, that. The, IOTA and all the products that we service are top of mind. That they that they trust us. That they're using our you know our 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 data is is, is higher quality. That we're you know that we're known for this global reach. And so unfortunately, it's really it's not a it's not a quote unquote funnel that we can for that side of the business that we can really manage because you can't. It's very very hard to track in general. Mm-hmm. For the brand right. side, yes, the newer side of our business that we can. Um, but we're not really big enough yet where those, uh, you know, where that part of the organization is, uh, 
you know, infighting over over who's 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 dropped the ball in, in terms of in terms of the funnel. Um, in that context, probably uh, especially interesting how important is the how important is brand not on the customer side, but your own brand for yourself. How much is IOTA sold through having a strong brand, and how do you approach brand? It's incredibly important for us because we operate in an environment um, where there is a sometimes a lack of understanding of how the data, you know, how the data and how data products work. There are a lot of hurdles around privacy, making sure that we're, you know, thinking, um, you know, that we're built and, and operating with privacy-centric methodologies. Um, just even transparency around how do we collect data? Where do we source it? Um, you know, what do we do with it? So, and that all really feeds into influencing who's using using your data when it comes time for for applying applying targeting and so it is extremely important for us and that's something you know we've re worked really hard to build over the last you know over the last 12 years is that ingrained trust with buyers that they know we are you know we've done this both through just internal um, is just through education being transparent about methodologies but also through external external data audits, um, you know, any sort of external non-biased uh, evaluations of our methodologies. You know, a we've done a lot on the privacy side to, you know, ensure everyone that what we're, the data that the, that we're putting on market is GDPR compliant or and now compliant to any other data privacy regulations across the globe. Um, so it's very important for us. And, you know, and how we do that is, a lot through things like this, you know, doing different certifications, um, a lot of thought leadership, uh, you know, so we, we do, and we do work on getting a lot of thought leadership pieces out to make sure that our message is heard around how we work and our level of transparency and, and how we see, how we see the market and how good data actors should be, you know, should be operating a market. Um, so yeah, definitely very, very important in our, in our industry. Which marketing channels do you use um, in, in, in order, I guess, mostly to, to create leads um, and, and why these specific ones? Yeah, so the main things we, the main things we use right now are, um, you know, digital, digital channels like, you know, LinkedIn, social. We do invest in thought leadership pieces, um, you know, because earned media is, is very hard to get in our space and you never know if, if the exact message, you know, the problem is, and this is something to be quite honest for a long time, I never wanted to admit this. I never wanted to admit that sometimes you have to pay to get your message out. But mm -hmm. the problem is if you rely on earned media only, you have no control over what they're going to write in the end. And they can, I mean, I've seen it happen to me many times where they've misinterpreted or, you know, even sometimes just slightly, but the message that I was trying to get across was, was, did not come across in, in the article. And so we, you know, we have made a decision to invest in, in thought, thought leadership, um, invest a lot in also in events um, and direct selling and email. Those are the main ones that we use. Performance marketing. And that's probably a tricky question to ask <laughs> specifically you. Um, but some people say performance marketing is dead or is dying soon. What's your view on that? Um, I don't think it'll ever die. I think the 
effectiveness and the competition is going to make it increasingly difficult. Um, it's going to evolve, but I don't think it's dead. I mean, like, I, I honestly, I, I don't think performance marketing will ever die. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but the difficulties, you, you, are you directly aff affected by the, by the, um, well, the increased focus um, on, um, on data privacy and the platforms taking more power in, in keeping information and data to themselves and, and only allowing marketeers to optimize more within the platforms um, in, instead of across, et cetera. Does that have a direct impact on, on you and your business? Um, yeah, I mean, it actually has somewhat of a positive impact for us because as those walled gardens get tighter and tighter, uh, you know, marketers need to find data points and, and uh, they need to find data points that they can use cross, you know, cross media, cross, uh, cross channel to be able to gain, to gain insights. And, you know, mm -hmm. our capability to, to feed into those different endpoints is, and you know, the ability for them to use that data directly instead of having it being linked into, into a walled garden that actually is, um, you know, that actually is a benefit for us. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think where we see the challenge on, um, you know, some of our, our counterpoints, for example, and NetWise are doing this more than, than we are, but, uh, You know, in the hardcore, for example, B2B performance marketing, um, where you see it's just like it's a, there's a real competition for share of voice. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, there's more and more, there, there's more and more, um, you know, there are more and more companies on market trying to reach similar profiles and personas. And that makes it challenging. You know, that is, mm -hmm. that's what makes it challenging, but it by no means is it dead. You, I think we already have established, you do have salespeople at IOTA. So my question is, where do you find good digital savvy salespeople? Um, we've been really lucky there. As I mentioned right now, I mean, the market in, hard, in general is hard, but the good thing is there actually are a lot of, there are a lot of digital salespeople out there. Um, yeah. <laughs> That is, <laughs> that is the first time I'm hearing that, but that's great to hear, actually. Well, let's say particularly for you know the 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 majority of the of the area that we operate in in programmatic advertising, uh -huh. there is there there are a lot of people who understand programmatic advertising and data right mm -hmm. now. Had you asked me, had you asked me six years ago, I would have said no. Yeah. Um. So I think what the bigger challenge is 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 getting them excited about the product you're bringing to market. And pulling in the pulling in the right salespeople, because um, again, like I said, it's not you know, the programmatic advertising ecosystem. Say like those types of salespeople, it's not a hardcore sales job where you're trying to close a deal. It is yeah. it is okay. a long term trust building, relationship building exercise. Um, you know, getting into the get you know it, it, it's basically more of a partnership with agencies than it is a like a hardcore sales job. Data. How does data, beyond being your product, but more like internally and for your for what you do, um, how does data make IOTA successful? Yeah, I think we've we we have a lot of data that we use to to make smarter decisions about where we're focusing our our sales and our and our and our uh, account building strategies. I would say that's probably beyond our technology and using all the data to optimize how our technology is is 
structured and built and optimized. I mean, that's obviously one very large part of it. In terms of the commercial side of the business, we actually have a lot of data, um, almost to the point where it's um, you know it's hard to wrangle and hard to normalize is is a big is a big challenge that we have. Um, but it provides, you know, when we get to that point, which we, which we have in, in, you know, took years to get there, but now that we have, um, we have everything sitting in Salesforce, um, and basically have, you have to imagine, you know, our data is, our data is used and distributed across, across, you know, let's say 50, 50 different endpoints and each of these endpoints, you know, what we want to get a, a, an overarching view of is who's buying what data for what purposes, now that sounds really simple, but you have to imagine. Let's say if uh, you know if if HP is has or is is managing programmatic advertising dollars, they could be using that data. They could be using three different platforms for different purposes, and the challenge becomes each one of those platforms delivers the data back to us with a different naming convention, with a different mm-hmm. like like everything is different. So. We have this massive, like the amount of insight is is amazing. Um, just the normalization and structuring of that data is was the biggest challenge that we have. But now that we have that in place, it is it's extremely effective, and we can see really. So where are you know we can see where all the seasonality trends are. We can see if people are switching budgets in between, um, you know, in between display and video. We can see if they're switching platforms. We can see where, you know, whether they're dropping, you know, swapping out products. So there's, there's just an amazing amount of insight. Um, And I would say it really, it does drive, you know, it does drive a lot of the decisioning on on the commercial side of the business. Mm -hmm. Um, So which functional areas um, are supported uh, by data? It's, it's for sure the commercial side, also product, et cetera. Who else? People, maybe the, the people's department. Um, I think from the data, from the data we house as the organization, not so much the people department and absolutely all of the, like everyone that touches the commercial side of the business, whether there's a customer success sales, so on and so forth. Um, if you were talking about this kind of, you know, campaign driven data that also very much does drive, um, the other side of our business, which is, is data supply recruitment. So the business development we do. So what Mm -hmm. data what data do we need to be able to service our clients best? Like, where is the demand coming from? Where, like, where's the gap that we have between demand and supply? So mm-hmm. we, we use it very much for, for those types of analysis. Um, and then if you look at it from, I mean, yes, from the people perspective, what we do use is the data around things like our employee reviews. I mean, there's, there's data that's not commercial driven data that we do use to, that impacts the business for sure. For the next few questions, I would actually love for you um, more to go into the advisor role. And you are now talking to um, to the founder of an early stage uh, company. So, um, because that's really like a field where where you're really an expert. Um, should a data team answer specific questions, or should they be allowed to explore data and just search and find opportunities for the company? Mm, I hate to have this not be a non-answer, but it has to be both. Because there are um, there are very specific answers as a questions that need to be answered. So, mm-hmm. uh, so you know, we had a you know we had an X drop in revenue between April and May. Who was it, like who was the client? Beca- again, because it's you know the majority of our business is driven by the programmatic activity. 
we don't know. It's not by a closed contract that we're running. Like we have to literally go look and see, okay, who's spend dropped, um, you know, in certain countries, what was, what was driving activity? By the way, the, I mean, the other, the other thing that's a huge data driver for us that, um, that we're looking at constantly is the, all the data suppliers that are feeding data into our system. And we were constantly monitoring to make sure that is stable and there are no big changes and that somebody doesn't drop off. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that is, sorry, now I totally lost. <laughs> I got sidetracked and lost the, sorry, what was the point? What was the question again? I got, I got sidetracked on my point about the data supply, which is also a huge, you know, a huge data, you know, data, data crunching yeah. exercise for us. Yeah. So I, I just hear a lot that, that um, business intelligence or, or data heads either ask their team to just focus, find out what the questions are and answer exactly these or use your time like go through the data yes, and, and yeah, find yeah, great Thank you for bringing me back. So yes, yeah. there are very specific questions that need to be answered, um, particularly from the commercial side. Okay, we need to, um, you know, where's our gap? Because we can see where demand is, where people are trying to book, like are running campaigns, but we're just, it doesn't have a lot of revenue. So we know that there's a gap in, if the supply is low on those types of audience segments. So definitely things like, um, you know, monitoring revenue activity by customer, uh, things like monitoring the, the gap between demand and supply. However, what's also, you know, interesting, if you give people the freedom to start looking through this data and understanding it, you can, you know, one thing I saw like years ago when, when I was doing a lot of these, this myself, amazing things that you can come, there's a lot of insights that you can glean out of this. If you do give somebody the, the opportunity to explore. And so things like, for example, understanding how traders are actually looking and searching for data segments and what their, what their habits are, because you can actually see it. When you see how a campaign is built, like what data they, they've chosen, sometimes you can see things like, you can tell that traders are actually just searching for a keyword mm -hmm. and booking everything that has to do with that keyword. Like you, you can, you can sure. see that if you look at the structure of the campaign and mm -hmm. what, what data they're using, which helps us, which helps us better, um, you know, better structure the way that we're presenting data in those interfaces. So for example, we know certain keywords are, is what is really highlighting, um, highlighting the purchasing behavior. Then we need to focus and make sure that the titles and the and the explanations of the of the data segments are such that they will be found when somebody's looking for a particular keyword. So things like that. I mean, there is a lot of insight yeah. also through the different channels. You know, for us, it's uh, if you look a little bit deeper into it, you can you can pull out more insights about what campaigns are targeting. Um, you know, mobile versus uh, mobile versus video versus you know banner display and things like that. How can you make sure that people really do what the data recommend instead of looking at it or ignoring it and then just following their gut feeling? I think that's just a management. I mean, that's just a, a, a question of rigor in setting the guidelines of what you're like, you know, what a team is looking at, how it's being, how it's being evaluated, how the action items out of that are being assessed and the follow through. Like I think, I think that's purely just a a process and management driven thing um, that can be that can be managed. If you are an early stage founder, uh, what would you recommend as data tools and infrastructure to use during the first one or two years? 
Um, you know, what we're working on right now is, is HubSpot, Salesforce, Snowflake, and AWS. Um, so those are, those are the main ones that, uh, those are the main things that we work off of. Um, I mean, I think for example, HubSpot is, 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 is a great tool. You know, I think that's, we also see NetWise, our, our partner company is, uh, that was acquired at the same time also has a really, a really sleek build off of, off of HubSpot. Um, I do find Salesforce is funny. It's one of those things you you never feel like you're getting everything out of it that you could. But if you have somebody, I mean, I think the difference for us with Salesforce, I think you have to have somebody who is really, if you want to make it effective, you have to have somebody whose full-time job is to to make sure that it's built and structured in a way that's that's um, that's supporting all parts of the organization and does it because it's um, unless you have somebody on it and making sure that everyone is using it it becomes a, a, a waste of money, <laughs> probably, probably like most other things, but um, yeah, but that's, that's what I would, uh, that, that's what I would start with again. Uh-huh. Um, how should a data team be structured? Which roles should you have there and where should it be located in the organization? So this is data. So are you talking about like all of the commercial facing, I mean, cause you have data from I mean, like product, product, product data or, Yeah, I mean, if you go if you go function specific, that probably answers already a little bit of of, of your view on that. Most com- or many companies just like have that one data team, and then out of that they they support different functions like product, like commercial, like people, like like other departments. Yeah. While some rather located within these teams. Yeah. Do, do you have a preference on these? So we have a more related in teams. Like I said, I mean, we do have, we do have a BI team. Um, you know, for some of the stuff is, is, is central. Um, you know, we do have, we have one person, we have, a, you know, business operations who's responsible for, uh, for implementation of, of Salesforce and making sure that, um, that everyone's getting everything they need out of that. Uh, but then we do have a BI team. I would say you know, that's the closest probably to what you're, what you're referring to in terms of a, a, a data team. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think for us, it sits partially within each of each part of the departments. Um, mm-hmm. but the, the centralized parts are through our BI and business operations. Okay. GDPR, is it a struggle or an opportunity? Uh, for us, most definitely an opportunity. Um, you know, I think there was a time, you know, obviously it's been quite a few years now and at the onset, there were some companies that leaned in. And there were some companies who walked away and, you know, we, we knew that there was a way to, to develop the product in a way that could be compliant. Obviously it means less scale, but that's okay because, you know, the need to use data for smarter decisioning is not going to disappear. Um, so it actually be, you know, it ended up being a, a, you know, a scarce commodity on the European market. And so that really played, played in our favor, the fact that we did lean in and figured it out. Uh, and stayed relevant on market with products. Environmental, social, and governance. Um, I think it's fair to say that IOTA is not an ESG company. So why didn't you instead start an ESG company? To be honest, it's not something that... It, so we founded the company 12 years ago. Um, it wasn't a really big topic back then. Um, you know, it wasn't something, you know, I, I think obviously it is, it is extremely important. Um, 
but it's not something that was was an area of focus and and even right now it's it's to be honest it's, it's not something we have like there there are definitely elements of this we build into the the way we we operate the company and and build our strategy but not in something that we would formally call ESG you know so if we're looking at um, if we're looking at environment you know there's there's always we're always looking at how do we minimize you know minimize the data footprint how do we minimize the amount of and, and to be to be selfish is not only because of environmental reasons but cost reasons but they they link together right I mean so we're always looking at how do we minimize minimize our our footprint um, for social you know, this, for us, is basic things around, uh, you know, being a fair and just employer and looking at inclusion and diversity, um, you know, where we haven't gotten a lot of very active, you know, particularly over the last couple of years is, you know, what's our impact on the local, uh, on, on the local, uh, you know, the local markets and the local, local economies. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's not something we're deeply, deeply in right now, but I think mm-hmm. looking at the elements of it are, are definitely important. I, I actually did a, a very quick check on Google Trends uh, of just a just a just a term or abbreviation ESG, and it basically just took off in the public perception. You could say in 2020. So I think it's totally fair to say that 10, 12 years ago, yeah. it it wasn't so much on top of everybody's <laughs> mind, even though it should have been obviously. Yeah. Um, but yeah, okay. Um, if you look at uh, funding today, and uh, you went, uh, I bet, through a, a lot of uh, funding rounds, um, but you also talked to a lot of investors. Do you think nowadays it helps companies when they are searching for funding to to have a certain focus on ESG um, because uh, investors see it as a necessity, or or, or even as a as a differentiator, or um, or do you think that an investor will always see it as a deflection from revenue focus? Oh, I don't. Oh, let's put it this way: I don't think they would say because they have a great ESG uh, ESG strategy or, or background that they would not look at the revenue any closer. So I think, yeah. um, I, I mean, I don't think the one would would necessarily negate the other, but I do think that's important. I think you know we live in a world where all of these factors are are becoming more and more important. Um, mm-hmm. You know, everything around us is is you know, you see, and it, you know, I think the important thing is it can give an indicator to the sustainability of the business. And I mm-hmm. think that's, that's the key factor that, you know, that I would imagine the investors are, are looking at and, and how to use that as a way to, to include in the evaluation of a company. Do you have an ESG officer or something, a similar role at IOTA? We do not, no. If you would have, do you, do, do, are you thinking about that? Or, or if you would have that, where would you... Uh, where would you locate it in your organization? What would be the reporting line where you would put it? Um, I would put it as a direct report into into me. Um, we don't have a plan right now. Again, you know, I think we're we're in a bit of a, a flux right now because we because of the recent acquisition. Um, and DMB does have uh, you know does operate in um, and have programs ESG programs and and focus. So I think for us right now, the reality is we will most likely work within, you know, follow their lead and work within what they are propagating for for ESG strategies um, instead of building our own at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Last three questions. Which is the one podcast all founders should listen to? 
So one that I love is um, one that people in Germany might not know too well. There's there's a company or, I mean, there's an organization in the States called NPR, um, National Public Radio. And they have amazing, if, any, if anyone hasn't checked it out, they have amazing podcasts and amazing content. Um, and they have a podcast called How I Built This. Yeah. And <laughs> what I love is that it's also, you know, because we're so deep in this tech area and everything we do is digital. And, and so what I find, I find incredibly interesting is opening up my mind to listen to all walks of entrepreneurial life. And, uh, and they just have, they're great storytellers. And I, so that's one that I really, I would really recommend to everyone. What are your top two pieces of advice for early stage founders? Can I extend it to three? Of course. <laughs> I thought about this one for a while and, and there were three and I, and I couldn't choose between them. So, um, so I'll give you three. Um, number one is be ready to persevere. It is a hard, long job with a lot of ups and downs. And you just have to be ready to get up every day and start every day fresh, no matter what happened last day, and just know you're going to get through it. And you have to keep, you just have to keep going and believe in where you're headed. Um, so that's the first one. Um, number two is, is build a network, use that network and ask for help. Because I think what's very challenging as a founder is you need to be, you need to know a little bit of everything. And so many of the things that you go through as a founder or decisions you have to make are ones that you've never been confronted with before. You don't know how to evaluate. Um, and you really, it's, I have found it incredibly valuable to build a, build a network of other founders that have, that are, you know, a bit further down the line than you are, um, or that have gone through this multiple times that you can reach out to as, as mentors or for advice. And I think what's, what's, was amazing to me was to find how open other entrepreneurs are to, to, to do, to, you know, to, to be those people. Everyone is so gracious with their time and so generous with their time. And it's, uh, I've, I've, I've just, I couldn't have, I couldn't, I wouldn't be here without it, to be honest. Um, and the third one is do what's right. You know, I think there's a lot of, sometimes you're faced with decisions of, do I go the fast way, which is maybe, you know, not like the quick and dirty way, or, you know, do I do something to just get a deal across the line or, um, you know, it's, it's an integrity question. You know, I think I think as a as a founder and as a business, your reputation follows you for the rest of your life. Um, mm -hmm. So don't cut corners and don't um, you know don't make just this one decision. It doesn't really matter. It's not going to hurt anybody. I mean, do do what's right because you will that will stay with you for the rest of your professional life. Thank you very much for that. Last question. Who are the two other founders that I could ask these questions and you could make an introduction for me? Oh, <laughs> you know what? I think I am going to have to think about this one and get back to you. Uh -huh. uh, reason being, unfortunately, and this is what I'm really trying to change right now that we're out of, out of this environment, my contact to other Founders has been really minimal over the last two years, um, two and a half years, really. You know, because there's just been no networking environments. There's 
it's been, except for the ones that I know on a day in day out basis that are in my, like, you know, my direct, uh, you know, my direct, um, my direct customers and partners, um, it's been really hard. So I'm, I'm looking forward to reopening my, my doors and my horizons and, and getting out there to meet new, meet new and great entrepreneurs. So I will get back to that, back to you on that one, Reiner. All right. And what might help you to catch up with a number of great founders is to just come over to the Project A Knowledge Conference on the 7th of October here in Berlin. Uh, you're obviously invited. Um, and if anybody in the audience is interested in uh, passing by, just visit our website and, and, and check it out. Um, you have been a speaker there, um, I think, last year. And as usual, you're very welcome there. Yeah, Christina, it. it's thanks. always one of the best. <laughs> Thank you so much for your uh, for for allowing us to to grab a bit of your experience and your recipes for success that 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 you have proven, and it was great to get to get your view um, on these forty two questions. Um, have a great day. Hope to catch up with you soon, um, and I will get back to you on the intros to the founders. I'll just crawl your LinkedIn profile or something. I will find somebody. <laughs> Great. Thanks cool. so much, Reiner. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Hello, podcast listeners. We have some exciting news for you. Our Project A Knowledge Conference is back and happening on October 7th at Kultur Brauerei in Berlin. If you want to get to the heart of the European startup ecosystem and connect with founders, leading investors, and digital experts, Join us for a whole day of knowledge sharing and networking, where experts from every area of digital operations will share their insights and best practices. This year, we're bringing you an amazing speaker lineup, including Christian Hacker, co-founder and CEO at Trade Republic, Lubomila Jordanova, co-founder and CEO at Plan A, and Philip Glockler and Philip Klockner, co-hosts of the Doppelganger Tech Talk podcast. Apply for a free ticket now or purchase one directly from our website, knowledge-conference.project-a.com.